What's up, listeners, and thank you for joining me for episode 17 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week, we're headed to Kentucky, and according to worldpopulationreview.com, the state of Kentucky has 248 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Kentucky true crime. All right, before we get right into the first case today, you already know I got to share a podcast I love with you. And this week, that is In the Nick of Crime podcast, hosted by Courtney and Michelle. As you can probably tell, they are a true crime podcast, and they also cover all things spooky. They're super sweet, down-to-earth, and hilarious, and I love what they're doing, so I wanted to share their trailer with you right now. Hi, creeps and freaks. Creepies and freakies. I'm Michelle. And I'm Courtney. And we are in the nick of crime. We come to you weekly with true crime, some spook spooks, and a little bit of comedy. We focus on being a voice for victims. But we also like to rake the offenders through the coals. We can never really seem to take ourselves too seriously, but we do hope you'll join us. So keep it creepy and stay freaky. And we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Once again, that is In the Nick of Crime podcast. Don't forget to go check them out on any platform you listen to your favorite podcast and go head over to Instagram and follow them at Nick of Crime podcast. The first story I want to share with you today is about a man by the name of Walter Greg Fowler. And Walter was known to go by his middle name, Greg. Greg Fowler was 44 years old when he disappeared on June 19, 1999 in Bowling Green, Kentucky. There's not a lot known about Greg's early life, but it is known that he was married to Deborah K. Fowler and also had a stepson named Mac Kessinger. I'm not sure how old Mac was, but I believe he was already grown at this time. Deborah had stated that Mac's grandparents raised him on their farm, and she said she never had a close relationship with him. On the day Greg disappeared, Deborah said he was going fishing at Barren River Lake along the Allen-Warren County line. Greg never returned from this supposed fishing trip, and he has never been seen or heard from again. When Greg didn't come home the following morning, Deborah contacted family and friends, but no one had seen him. When she called the police, they told her she would have to wait the full 24 hours before she could officially report him missing. She was finally able to file the report later that day on Sunday the 20th, and on Monday, June 21st, she contacted a state official who offered to meet her at Barren River Lake to help search for Greg. There are two different accounts of how Greg's boat was eventually discovered. The first account stated that Deborah told police she spotted the boat in the Barren River, 
when she was driving over the Kentucky 101 bridge. This was about two and a half miles downstream from the lake. She then stopped and tried to drag it to shore when a work crew with the county jail passed by and helped bring it in. The second account stated that Deborah spotted the boat as she was driving over the bridge on her way to meet up with the state official. I couldn't find a confirmation of which account is true, but we do know Deborah was the one that found Greg's boat. The same day the boat was discovered, searchers also found his minivan and trailer abandoned at the end of a gravel road off Osborne Ford Road. The vehicle was located just a few feet from another boat drop-off into Barron River and about two miles from where his boat had been found. Greg had worked at an electric company in Glasgow for the last 20 years, and police ended up finding out that an unknown person had called his work the day before he disappeared, which would have been on Friday, and said that Greg would not be into work that day. This was unusual because employees stated he was a great employee and a great guy. Workers from his electric company volunteered and helped search the 15-mile stretch of the river following his disappearance. The CEO of the company even stated years later that they still talk about Greg's story to this day. Originally, Greg's disappearance was investigated as a missing persons case. What followed was a long list of frustrating dead ends. After extensive searches of the Barren River and the surrounding banks came up with nothing, they upgraded the case to a homicide investigation. The Barren River is fairly shallow, and investigators stated they should have been able to recover his body if it had been an accidental drowning. Other details surfaced that made authorities believe more than one person may have been involved in Greg's death. Even though Deborah had told authorities he had planned for this to be an overnight trip, they didn't find any overnight provisions in his boat or his vehicle. The abandoned boat also had no motor or oars on board when it was found. So it kind of seemed like someone had just pushed the boat into the water. They found out that Greg never mentioned any plans to go fishing to his co-workers, and people who knew him said he preferred golfing and turkey hunting over fishing. Before we go any further, I want you to know that the account of events leading up to him disappearing comes from his wife, Deborah. So according to her, she last saw him Saturday morning before he left, but we really don't have any way to confirm this is true. Investigators just had to take her word for it. And I'm bringing that up because you're going to find out Deborah is not so innocent herself. It came out that Greg and Deborah were $250,000 in debt when he disappeared. This fact alone led to a lot of theories that Deborah was responsible for Greg's disappearance. Authorities discovered that Greg had a life insurance policy Deborah stated she knew nothing about. According to court documents, from the beginning of April 2008 through December 2009, so almost 10 years after Greg disappeared, Deborah came up with a plan to defraud her creditors the U.S. trustee, and the bankruptcy court by submitting a fraudulent Chapter 7 bankruptcy petition. 
This petition failed to disclose the purchase of a property, the transfer of over $95,000 in proceeds from Greg's life insurance policy, over $47,000 from his retirement benefits, and the purchase of a 2006 Chevy Equinox. Documents stated that she paid over $14,000 with money she obtained from a MetLife total control account for life insurance beneficiaries and also hid a remaining balance of over $13,000 in that account. There were also multiple records of Deborah transferring some of Greg's life insurance and retirement benefits to the bank accounts of family members and other acquaintances for her own benefit. With all these charges, Deborah was facing forfeiture of property, no more than 10 years in prison for bankruptcy fraud, a fine of $500,000, and a three-year period of supervised release. Deborah pleaded guilty to one count each of bankruptcy fraud and bankruptcy concealment when she was 58 years old. The plea agreement she reached with the U.S. Attorney's Office recommended a six-month sentence that she would be serving after she completed a six-year sentence for a separate arson charge. Deborah had also been charged for a fire she set on June 27, 2011 that destroyed the Dollar General store she managed before it was set to open for business that day. Even though these events took place a few years apart, She was charged for both of them in the same year. Teams from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives and the Western Kentucky Task Force investigated the scene and provided testimony stating the fire had been deliberately set in the store's break room. Investigators had recovered charcoal and exploded fireworks in this area of the store. The day the fire took place, An audit process of Deborah's store was about to begin that would have exposed Deborah had been stealing money and merchandise from the store. Security camera footage from the store showed Deborah moving displays of fireworks on the main sales floor the night before the fire. The fire did extensive damage to the building to the point that it had to be completely rebuilt, resulting in overall losses over $1 million. A man named Paul was the building's owner, and he was quoted saying, I had to borrow money to rebuild the store. It wasn't a very pleasant time in my life. I'm just happy nobody got hurt, End quote. During the hearing, the regional loss prevention manager for Dollar General testified that Deborah had used a ledger book in violation of company policy to track cash receipts at the store. They argued that these ledgers had allowed her to roll deposits, meaning she would use the current day's money from sales to make up for the money missing from the previous day's deposit. Deborah had made a statement in court saying, quote, I had nothing to gain from the destruction of this store. I would never put myself at such risk, end quote. A special agent also gave testimony that they had discovered a shortage of about $800 in June or July of 2010 on the store bank account statements shortly after Deborah had become the manager. When she was questioned about this, she claimed that the bank where she took the deposit must have placed the money in the wrong account. Federal sentencing guidelines take into account the nature of a person's previous criminal history. 
and they recommended a sentence anywhere between nine years to 12 years and three months. The judge, however, did not agree with this assessment and instead determined that the proper sentence fell between the range of five years and three months to six and a half years. Deborah's attorney argued for a five-year sentence, which was the mandatory minimum for arson, because he argued that prosecutors didn't have enough to prove Deborah actually took the money or inventory from the store. The prosecution stated that a sentence in the higher range was necessary because of the measures Deborah had taken to conceal her mismanagement of the store. They stated, quote, she was willing to ratchet up her criminal behavior to conceal a relatively minor offense, end quote. At one point, her sister claimed she was the victim of a witch hunt. Deborah was facing between 5 to 20 years in prison for destroying property by means of fire, a $250,000 fine, along with a three-year period of supervised release, and she was scheduled for sentencing by Chief District Judge Joseph McKinley Jr. on March 12, 2015. She maintained her innocence throughout the entire trial and in her final remarks to the judge before sentencing. It only took the jury a little over two hours to come back with a unanimous verdict of guilty. Deborah was convicted of maliciously damaging and destroying and attempting to damage and destroy, by means of fire, the Dollar General store and the personal property located in Hart County, Kentucky. The judge touched on Deborah's denial of guilt before handing down the sentence, stating, I know you believe you were wrongly convicted, but I think there was enough reason for the jury to convict you. It doesn't make a lot of sense for you to do it, but I think you did it. It may have been a situation that did get out of control. End quote. The judge sentenced her to six years in prison, and she was ordered to pay over $980,000 in restitution to Dollar General and the store's insurance company. Deborah was then taken into the custody of the United States Marshal Service and stated she planned to appeal her conviction. I never found anything else following up on Deborah and these charges, so I'm not sure if she's still in prison or has been released. Please understand that this disappearance is about Greg, but I wanted to share all of this about Deborah because I think it's safe to say she was willing to go to extreme measures when she was in financial trouble. Authorities were never able to prove if Deborah was involved in the murder and disappearance of her husband, Greg, and his case remains unsolved to this day. Detective Castle is the current active detective on Greg's case, and he stated that he hopes someday he will get the crucial tip that will lead him and investigators to Greg's body and eventually his killer's. A $5,000 reward still exists for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for Greg's disappearance. Walter Greg Fowler was last seen leaving his home by his wife on the morning of June 19, 1999 to go fishing in Bowling Green, Kentucky when he was 44 years old. He is a Caucasian male with brown hair and blue eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was 5'8 and weighed around 220 pounds. He was last seen wearing a gray Wildcats t-shirt, black shorts, 
Adidas sneakers, and a camouflage Redman baseball cap. Walter went by his middle name Greg and also had a beard and mustache when he disappeared. His case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Greg Fowler, please contact the Warren County Sheriff's Office at 270-842-1633. The second case I want to share with you is about a woman by the name of Orla Align J. Lawrence Barrick. And even though her first name is Orla, everyone said that she went by her middle name, Align, so that's what I'm going to call her. Align Barrick was born on January 16, 1935. There's not a lot known about her early life but it is known that she was a very organized and hardworking woman who stuck to a routine. She had become a widow in 1982 and had lived alone in her cabin near Nolan River Lake in Edmondson County, Kentucky, ever since. There's no information available on her late husband, and I couldn't even find his name, but she continued to use his last name after he passed away. She adored her Pomeranian named Fifi, and never missed their daily routine walks. She was known by friends and neighbors for her acts of kindness and helping others, but was also outspoken when she needed to be. She had been a working mother throughout her life and supported her daughters by selling Avon cosmetic products and doing farm work. That's really all the information available on Aline's early life, so we're going to go to the day she disappeared. Even though she lived alone, we do have a few confirmed sightings of her before she disappeared that Friday, April 12, 1996. She was 61 at this time and had a chiropractic appointment that morning. Police were able to confirm she went to this appointment and then to the tanning salon immediately after. On her way home, she stopped by the home of a handyman she had hired to do some work around her house. Her daughter Kay stated a line went home after stopping by this man's house. It didn't state how Kay knew this, so I'm assuming they must have spoken on the phone at some point after a line got home. At about 2.30 p.m. that afternoon, a line was seen outside on her normal walk with Fifi. Her neighborhood was located near Mammoth Cave National Park, and this was a gated community. I think it's important to note that the gated community she lived in consisted of a few cabins, but most of her neighbors were seasonal vacationers. I wanted to note this because this makes the suspect pool widen a lot. During this walk, a line ran into some teenagers that were staying in a nearby cabin and she stopped and had a short conversation with them. The details of this conversation are unknown to this day. This was the last time anyone reportedly saw a line. We do know at some point she spoke to her sister-in-law that day because she was supposed to spend the weekend with her brother Pete and his wife in Frankfort, Kentucky. During this phone conversation, she told her sister-in-law she wouldn't be coming, but she never gave any explanation as to why. Three days went by before her neighbor named Lawrence realized he had not seen her walking Fifi in days. Lawrence was one of the few permanent residents in the community, so he was very familiar with Align and her routine. 
Remember, she had a strict schedule she followed, and this included Fifi's daily walks. Lawrence quickly contacted the Edmondson County Sheriff's Department to express his concerns and ask for a welfare check. Police ended up having to break a window over the kitchen sink to get inside of the home, and when they finally got inside, it was clear something terrible had happened in the home. Friends and family made statements that a line would have never left without a fight, and there was plenty of evidence to back that up. In the living room, the sofa had been moved and there were obvious bloodstains on the carpet. When they searched her bedroom, they found a pile of bed linens in the middle of the bed that had bloodstains, and the fitted sheet to the bed was missing. A glass that had been on her nightstand had also been knocked onto the floor. Her daughter Kay later stated she believed Aline had been trying to reach the gun she kept in her nightstand drawer. The rest of the details of her disappearance came from piecing together information on her answering machine and the evidence found in her home. They believed Aline was in the process of her nighttime routine when someone abruptly interrupted her. Police concluded this because her bottom dentures were found in their soaking container, but the top set were missing. A cigarette had burned into the bathroom counter like she had dropped it or had been forced to suddenly put it down. They also found a new plastic garbage bag on the sink counter ready to be placed in the bathroom garbage can. Authorities believe Aline knew the person because there was no sign of forced entry into the home. It was also said that she would never allow anyone to see her without her top dentures, so it has been speculated that she had put them back in whenever this person arrived. Aline kept a spare key to her house hidden under a fake rock outside, and that key was also missing. Her truck was still at her house, but it was strange because her house keys were inside the truck while her truck keys were still inside the home. Whoever was the last person to leave her house took the time to turn off all the lights and lock all the doors. They also left her dog locked inside of its crate. The only things reportedly missing from the home were her purse, the fitted sheet, and a line herself. Within days, her family put up a $5,000 reward, which to this day has gone unclaimed. State police conducted group searches in the surrounding areas, as well as having scuba divers search the lakes. They interviewed a few persons of interest, but ultimately came up with nothing. One person authorities were particularly interested in speaking to was the man that some believe she was possibly involved in or the guy that had been doing work on her home. Her family believed the handyman she had stopped by to see that day had something to do with her disappearance, but further interviews with detectives came up with no clues. Kay later stated in a Dateline interview that this man left the area shortly after a line disappeared and had later been arrested. A detective confirmed to Dateline that this man did serve time in Illinois for crimes unrelated to Aline's disappearance, but he couldn't confirm if he's still serving time or not. I really wish I knew this man's name just so I could give all of you a general warning. After police interviews and searches found no new leads, the family decided they had nothing to lose and contacted a psychic located in New Jersey. This person stated that a line was within 15 miles of her home and that more than one person had committed the crime. 
This psychic also went so far to say that a line had seen or met one of the people at a social event at a local firehouse. I couldn't find any other follow-up on the claim this psychic made. And based on the condition of her home, authorities and her family believe she was abducted or killed, most likely by someone she knew. Even though a line went missing in 1996, a detective told Dateline they have had cadaver dogs search for signs of her around that property as late as the winter of 2016. Quote, we haven't had enough evidence or leads to make a true suspect or get enough to charge somebody. As time goes by, you have fewer and fewer people who knew her or remember what happened, end quote. This case has been open for more than two decades, so the detectives who were originally assigned to the case have retired or moved on to other positions. The mystery continues to haunt her family. Most of her remaining descendants only know her by name, a handful of photographs, and a mystery that never seems to end. I want to end with a statement made by her daughter Kay. Quote, It's like having a nightmare that you can never wake up from. End quote. She said she hopes to put her mother to rest, stating, quote, she deserves to be buried and not just be thrown away, end quote. If a line were alive today, she would now be the grandmother of seven grandchildren, four girls, and three boys. A line barrack was last seen at her home in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, on April 12, 1996, when she was 61 years old. She is a Caucasian female with gray hair and green eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 5 and weighed around 120 pounds. She was last seen wearing a blouse and denim shorts when she was walking her dog. Aline had a surgical scar on her back. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Aline Barrick, please contact the Kentucky State Police at 502-782-1800. That's all I have for this week's episode, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that went missing and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out to me via email, podcast 7 at gmail.com. And don't forget to head over to Instagram and follow me at Pod. As always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.